0: hard at their labor. He saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Peter. All right. Thank you, Kristen. So let's give them a hand. Just so thankful for what they're doing in our city. It's one of the fun things that we've been able to do as a church is just to spend time each week uh, becoming aware of what God's doing in our city and just to obey Jeremiah 29, which says to pray for the peace and the shalom of our city. And so thank you for what you're doing. My name's Brandon. I serve as the lead pastor here at Midtown. If you're new to SOMA, um, in the last couple weeks, which we kind of had a surge of people come in, uh, you may be like, who are you? Uh, I've been out the last couple weeks, and so uh, the first week I was on vacation, and then Pastor Josh preached last week, so uh, sorry if you're disappointed that it's me, uh, but it is. Uh, next week I'll actually be out again, and uh, just the reason for, uh, you'll see me a little bit um, less teaching over the next few months. Um, three and a half years ago we had the privilege of planting um, our second congregation downtown, some downtown, and that's gone wonderfully, we mentioned it this morning. Uh, but, um, as with any new endeavor, uh, the first couple years is all about survival, right? And so, just like having kids or starting a business, the goal is just be here. And uh, as we've gotten to three and a half years, we're here. Uh, the congregation is, is growing. It's uh, well over 200 people. But we've also uh, encountered uh, challenges and obstacles. And so, we are, uh, specifically myself and Robin and Grant, our management team here, uh, that serves the whole family of churches, are beginning to provide some resources and strength really to do two things. One, to strengthen the leadership downtown. It's a very young congregation. I think 70 plus percent of downtown has been between the ages of 22 and 26. Uh, now that sounds awesome, but it also brings some challenges. Um, and so we are kind of strengthening their leadership and helping them raise up more leaders, helping them to, to, uh, to raise up elders and deacons and leaders for the church and the community. And then secondly, we're also helping to deepen their vision as, they, as we learn kind of what downtown needs and, and who we need to become as a church. We want to continue to clarify uh, the vision that God has for us, and so we're beginning to step towards that, provide some leadership. So we're rotating down there, so you'll see me back and forth. It's not because I'm quitting or resigning or I don't love you guys. It's just uh, we have a family of churches, and it's one of the beauties of being an interdependent movement is that we get to help one another in times of need. And growth, and so that's going to be happening. Um, also, second thing I mentioned before we get into Exodus here, uh, it's crowded, right? Like, look around. I know some of you are in distress because there's people right on your left and on your right. Some of you love that energy, and some of you are like, I literally hate this. Okay, so we know that it's crowded. We have people every week, uh, both in this room and then upstairs in our overflow, that are watching on video and listening uh, via audio. Uh, kind of remotely from this room, and so thankful for those. Our missional communities, which is kind of like our small group structure here at SOMA, are taking turns every week. Two of them are volunteering to step out of the gathering and into that overflow room. Uh, And you're welcome, obviously, if this is like to, you know, just like you have some kind of phobia of like public spaces like this, you can go up there anytime you want. Uh, It's quieter, more intimate. But um, we know that, and so we have commissioned a feasibility team, that is studying kind of our space usage um, and beginning to look at different options for us. Uh, we want to stay here in Midtown, obviously, and we'd love to stay in this space. Um, but it's a big leap from where we are now. This building cost us a million dollars when we were like 200 people, which is a crazy leap of faith and a great story of how God provided. Uh, to move across the street to the marsh, for instance, which many of you have suggested, hey, there's a big empty building across the street. It's about 10 to $12 million, so a little bit of a leap from where we are uh, right now. And so we're beginning just to kind of look around. As you know, it's very expensive. Real estate is, is hard to come by in Midtown other than boutique spaces. And so uh, Matt Wagner's here on the front as a commercial realtor, a member of our church. He and a couple other uh, folks are leading this team. We'll be giving an update, I think, next week maybe, in the next couple weeks on first week of March, uh, on that process. And so you can be praying for us as we seek to uh, just kind of deal with this, right? We never uh, had a goal to become a big church, but... Um, Even though we tell you guys to go away, you continue to come back and bring friends. And so we're thankful for that uh, privilege. Yes, and also Matt said if anybody feels led to give us $12 bucks, we will receive that from God. (laughs) That's His grace. So we are uh, in the book of Exodus. And if you're new, again, or been a while since you've been here, we're alternating between the book of Exodus over the next year and a half and our spiritual formation series. So we just finished up Sabbath Way of Life. And you'll see some of those threads come through even in the story of Moses and, Exodus, and the Exodus. Uh, and then uh, we'll start a prayer series in Lent that will take us through Easter. And then we'll be jumping back about every six to seven weeks into the book of Exodus. So if you're new to the book of Exodus, uh, basically to catch you up to speed here in chapter two, chapters 1 and 2, the people of God have been involuntarily forced into labor and slavery um, and so uh, they are under this oppression. God is seemingly silent and hidden, uh, and yet God is at work in, uh, in this, uh, this Egyptian kind of uh, forced labor. You have this psychotic leader, Pharaoh, that represents kind of this empire of productivity and anxiety and violence and coercion. And so really what you have in the Exodus is a collision of two narratives, right, kind of two stories, uh, two visions for the good life, one driven by kind of productivity and efficiency and and commercialism and, uh, and ex- exploitation and violence, and we begin to see later on in the book about God's deliverance and God's story of rescue and liberation and freedom. And so um, we kind of have a little bit of an interlude here in the story. You have kind of the backdrop in chapter one of uh, the situation that people find themselves in. Literally, you have uh, murder, you have uh, all, all forms of oppression and violence happening in the book of Exodus, um, every bit as much as what we experience, if not more, than uh, the now. And then we have in chapter 2 kind of a pause, um, and God stops. It's in between God showing up and beginning to speak and uh, the cries for deliverance. And God wants to bring us into not just um, what he's doing in the world, but what he's doing through human beings in the world. And so he, he kind of zooms in, Uh, to show us and give us a little bit of a picture of the journey, right? And so there's things for us to learn here from the story of Moses. Last week we encountered kind of the birth narrative of of Moses, and and this week we're going to look at um, the kind of transformational leadership journey. So I've titled this The Transformation of Moses. Now, my mom's an English teacher, so just a little uh, sidebar here. I, I know some of you are like, why is it not Moses's? Uh, transformation. Uh, there's, a, there's a war that's raging in education and grammar over whether or not there's an apostrophe or an apostrophe S. So to save us all that anxiety this morning, I just called it the transformation of Moses. Okay, And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then good. You weren't raised by a, a, an educator. But, um, but it's the, the transformative journey that Moses goes through to become the kind of leader that is going to be able to lead the people of God out of slavery and into the promised land. And so here's kind of the big idea for our talk here today, for this uh, teaching, is um, what we're going to see in the life of Moses in terms of God, his transformation of Moses, God's transformation of Moses, is that God's work of liberation, which is what the book of Exodus is all about, liberation. Uh, God's work of liberation in you is the catalyst for God's work of liberation through you. God, wants, God is doing something significant, as significant in the life and the heart And the insides of Moses is what he's going to do through Moses as the liberator, as the one who's going to lead people out of slavery. And it's interesting just how mundane this whole thing starts, right? It's not like, you know, Moses comes on the scene and there's like Star Wars music and it's like in a, you know, galaxy far, far away. There's like this big rebellion. Notice in verse 11, chapter 2, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. Like, Moses literally is, is just going for a walk, right? And, and the narrative really here from chapter 2 uh, all the way through uh, the end of chapter 3 really centers on two walks that Moses takes. Now, I don't know if you're a walker. Some, you're too young. Most of us in this room probably too young to appreciate a good walk. Uh, when I was younger, uh, I'm 38, almost 39. When I was in my 20s, I didn't walk anywhere, right? Like, I, I ran. I, I sped. I, I think I was in and out. I got... Eight traffic tickets in my 20s. I did not appreciate anything slow. Um, I moved to Indianapolis and started to plan a church and uh, began to appreciate walking. Uh, when I moved into Butler Tarkington, where my family lives, uh, it's on the, if you're not familiar, it's right off Butler's campus on the west side. Um, it, it's an interesting place to walk around. Like if you just get outside your house and walk, you're going to see um, somewhat of the conflicting nature of Midtown, right? You're going to see Privilege right alongside poverty. You're going to walk south uh, down uh, Illinois Street or Capitol Street or Boulevard, and you're going to see the scourge of poverty. The closer that you get to 38th Street, right, you're going to see abandoned housing. You're going to see a food desert. You're going to see uh, uh, beat up cars. You're going to see uh, people of various uh, ethnicities and and classes, kind of out uh, walking the neighborhood. Right, it's an interesting kind of place to to walk around. You're going to hear gunshots. Um, You walk north in our neighborhood and you're going to see all the privilege uh, of anywhere in the world, right? As you get closer to the canal and you go north up into Meridian Hills, you're going to see mansions. You're going to see all the trappings and symbols of power and privilege uh, and wealth and affluence. And so it's an interesting place to walk around and just to pray and to kind of see what you can see. And Moses goes on a series of walks that literally changes life. Like he walks out of the palace the place of privilege and power, and he doesn't come back to the palace for 40 years. So be careful what kind of walks you take. (laughs) Be careful where you walk, where you go, because things can change quickly. And so I want us to see what Moses saw. Really, one of the key words here in chapter 3 is around sight. It's around optics. What you see and who sees what and what they do about what they see. It's like you can live life without really seeing, or you can live life seeing the wrong things or seeing the wrong side of things. God wants us to see um, things that are aligned with his heart, his purposes. And so let's look and see what Moses sees. He, he's grown up, and he, went, he goes out to the people, and he looks on, circle that word, looks on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? That's foreshadowing, because Moses will become the judge and the prince of his people. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well, just like his forefathers. So we see here the beginnings of Moses' leadership journey, right? And uh, the beginnings of this prophetic calling that God has On his life. At this point, Moses doesn't know God. He's a pagan. He has no experience. He's not encountered God whatsoever. And so let me just mark our way here with a couple of uh, descriptive phrases to help us clue into what God's doing here in Moses' journey. The first piece of his journey involving his childhood, uh, we see Moses' privilege and his pain. Moses was raised, his family of origin was a place of both privilege and pain. We see the juxtaposition of privilege, and life in the palace as a cultural elite laid right alongside uh, his adoption story, right? His traumatic childhood in terms of the way that he was raised. Moses experienced deep pain that caused a lot of confusion. That's what happens for a lot of us in childhood, right? We experience pain, and it leads to confusion about who we are and what our purposes are in the world. He had a lot of trauma, we'd say. He was abandoned by his mother, we heard about last week, even though it was for the best of reasons. He was given up for adoption, right? He was raised with the majority of his peers, the firstborn children, under the edict of the Pharaoh, being drowned in the river. And so in order to avoid being drowned in the river, his mother, with compassion and courage, places him in a basket. And He was then uh, adopted into the Pharaoh's family, the Pharaoh's daughter. Again, going against every cultural norm in her society, picks up this Hebrew boy and, and decides to adopt him. But he's then reunited with his birth family, only to then be returned to his adoptive family later on. He was raised in a pagan environment that prohibited him from living and worshiping with his fellow Hebrews, according to the traditions of his own heritage. He lived between two worlds, you could say, and yet was not fully at home in either place. I don't know if that resonates with any of you in this room, feeling like you don't have a home, that your life is, in some senses, an alien or immigrant existence, trapped between, between two stories, two worlds, two families. You see, in the midst of that, there's a lot of privilege, right He's raised as a cultural elite. I mean, Acts chapter seven, verse 22. Stephen says this about Moses. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and deed. He was persuasive. He was smart. He was gifted, right He was educated with, the, I mean, the top-flight education that you could receive Ivy League education, instructed, I mean, house in the Hamptons, right, like all the privileges and all the blessings of being raised in the palace. The The scriptures also going to tell us that Moses was approximately 40 years old. So Moses' life, if you want to break it up, uh, it actually uh, breaks up neatly into three seasons. The first 40 years, right, um, to right here, then the next 40 years in the wilderness, and then the last 40 years when he comes back and leads his people uh, out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. Forty is a number that stands in the Bible for testing, right? So you can see these as three tests, three journeys that Moses is on in his life. And here's the cool thing is that God uses all of this stuff in his life. He uses both the privilege and the pain of his life to shape him and to prepare him for his role as a liberator. Moses doesn't just show up, again, as a hero in some kind of a vacuum, right? Like we sometimes look at biblical characters, in very, like, two-dimensional terms, like, they're not human beings. You know, they're just, like, these (coughs) felt felt board, excuse me, (coughs) felt board, cardboard cutouts if you grew up in the church, you know? They just, like, you know, veggie tales. It's like, they they don't have a past. You know, they're just, like, no story. And yet we see here, like, Moses is a very complex human being, and his life is a contrast in privilege and pain. So Moses... With all of this confusion, with all of this crisis, with all of this pain that probably he hasn't dealt with up to this point in his life, he walks out and he looks outside. So we see a couple things here in um, the second piece of his journey. He moves from privilege and pain to failure and exile. Failure and exile. So Moses, it says, sees, right? Thank you, Christian. Moses sees so he walks out in Egypt, right? Egypt, a place of beauty with all the pyramids and the gardens, right? All the wealth and all the affluence of Egypt. Moses sees differently than anybody else. That word looked upon, that word sees is not just literally like the information comes into his eyeballs and is processed by his brain. The word sight there is a word that we go, if you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 16, it's the same word when God looked on Hagar and her oppression. It's to see with emotion. It's to see with compassion. It's to see with the heart. It's the kind of spiritual and emotional insight that arises from a place of compassion. And that was the kind of person that even before knowing God, Moses was. He had an immense amount of compassion. He saw with emotion, he was moved by their burdens when he saw the weight that they were carrying under this Egyptian oppression. Now, this is crazy, because if you know anything about the way that people would be raised in Egyptian culture, um, people who study the ancient Near East would tell us that the Egyptians trained uh, their cultural elites to see slaves as subhuman. They were not people, they were commodities. They were sub-human human, right? And so as Moses looks out and he sees what he calls his brothers, he sees people created in the image of God like him. He shares that sense of solidarity. He is literally subverting the social and religious and cultural powers of Egypt, even to look out and to see in a way that nobody else saw. He saw them as people with rights, people with dignity, people who had burdens that had been laid on them, many of them, most of them, almost all of them, they did not choose for themselves. He saw them as his brothers, his own flesh and blood, his people, not just as the other, but as his own. There's a solidarity there in his sight that if we're honest, it's hard for us to do. It's hard for us to see that. Why don't know if you ever think about that, like if you walk around your workplace, how do you see people, right? Do you just see them as coworkers? Do you see them as just like commodities to be utilized, your direct reports, right? People that you use to advance your own purposes, your own wealth, your own status? Do you see them as annoyances? Do you see, I mean, how do you see? Like when you walk out into the city and you walk in downtown and you see poverty, when you see the houseless, when you see, uh, fellow image bearers, like how do you see? Do you see? Do we see? The way that Moses sees, the way that God is going to see here very shortly, it's so hard for us to see people that way, to see them with compassion. It's easier to see them as competitors, to see them as commodities, to see them as units of productivity, to see them as annoyances, to see them through the lenses of kind of uh, cultural narratives the conservative and progressive narratives but do we see them as people it, it's why it's easy for us like we look back and we build, we're like how could they how dare the egyptians do this to people how could you consistently and persistently over the course of generation after generation oppress a people like i, I know that doesn't sound familiar to us as americans but like yeah, like imagine how could pe- like do you ever ask yourself that question like how was that possible Like, I grew up in the South. How is that possible that people thought that way? They felt free to just oppress other human beings. Well, it's easy. When I don't see them as myself, then I'm free to treat them as an other, as a commodity. Miroslav Volf, who is a a Croatian theologian, wrote a great book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he's reflecting back on kind of uh, the war horrors of growing up, uh, around uh, this, this area like Yugoslavia and Croatia and reflecting on all the violence that he'd experienced and, and what leads people to act that way and treat one another that way. And here's just a profound insight that he has in this book, Exclusion and Embrace. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion. Without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity. And herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. That's the journey that God has Moses on, bringing him into the sphere of shared humanity. Moses, these are your people. Moses, you are a sinner just like them. Were it not for some courageous, I mean, think about the courage and the compassion of Moses. Most of it probably comes uh, through uh, his mothers, right? Like, you think about the courage and the compassion of both his birth mother and his adoptive mother risking their own lives. I think Moses kind of learned something about that from the way that he was raised. But God's bringing him into this kind of shared humanity. You are just like them. They are just like you. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11. Like Moses is becoming consciously aware for the first time in his life that he is not truly at the soul level an Egyptian. He is a Hebrew. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses sees, and then he intervenes, right? And again, this is a foreshadowing. All of this language here is a foreshadowing of God's intervention uh, later on in the book of Exodus, right? Uh, But God intervenes, and I want you to see this. God intervenes in the midst of jacked up stuff. He intervenes, into the cycles of violence, right? Like there is real violence. This is not just a fairy tale. This is not, again, like a galaxy far, far away. Salvation is embodied and it is messy and God has to enter into the reality of violence, like sometimes as Christians, we wanna like, you know, do this kinda Pollyanna thing where we close our eyes and we click our heels and there's no place like home and no place like home and and we don't wanna deal with all the grittiness of the world. God enters right into, Moses enters right into a literal beating, like the word here is a beating that is going to lead to death, this word naka in the Hebrew. It is a beating that is leading to pulverizing this person comprehensively, beating them down psychologically, but beating them down physically. And it's into that kind of bloody mess that Moses interjects himself. And again, foreshadowing his role as the deliverer of God's people. Violence always characterizes an unjust society, and God always calls us to enter into that. We don't get exempt from that as his people. So Moses intervenes. And uh, we see there that he kind of loses his temper. He, he kills basically a, an Egyptian line manager. And then, he, and then the next day he's out walking and hides the body. So we know that there's something amiss here because uh, he, he hides the body in the sand. Now, a prince could um, kill somebody if they wanted to without any kind of uh, repercussion or recourse. But the, the key is here he kills an Egyptian And so what's being exposed here is where Moses' true loyalties lie, right? His loyalty is now being transferred, at least in the eyes of the the ruling class and the elites and the Pharaoh, from the palace to the slaves. He's now identifying with this slave community and saying, these are my people. And yet, he's rejected by his own people, right? He he tries to intervene after killing this Egyptian line manager, which I'm sure is like, I'm going to earn some street cred here in in the community of the Hebrews, the next day, there's a fight that's going on, and it's interesting, it's the same language, beating one another. That same word there as the way the Egyptians are beating one another. Now, this cycle of violence is even working itself out in the slave community. And so Moses uh, intervenes, and this guy's like, hey, you going to kill me like you killed the other guy? And Moses is like, oh, crap, I got to get out of here. So, so he runs, basically. He runs, and he flees into the desert because now his true loyalties have been revealed. Now, I I think there's so much for us to learn here in this story of Moses. I mean, Moses is essentially um, a young, angsty leader. Does that sound familiar? Right? Like, we have a lot of young, angsty leaders here who are anxious to get out and to do good in the world, who are anxious to get out and and be on mission with God and and bring justice to the city and bring righteousness to the city. Um, But what we see here, I think, is so important for us to see. Again, Exodus is our story. It was not just about what happened thousands uh, of years ago. This is our story. And what we see uh, with Moses in his failure, right? Like right intention, but bad execution. That's kind of like the story of Moses' early journey. He has a temper, right? And we see flashes of anger go off throughout the book of Exodus. We'll see Moses' temper ultimately disqualify him from going into the promised land with God's people later on in uh, the Torah. But what we see fundamentally here in the story of Moses as an angsty leader is this invitation to trust God instead of trying to play God. That's, that's kind of Moses' journey right here is he's trying to play God. He has a sense of this divine calling. He didn't even know what it is, just this sense in him, his blood is boiling, seeing injustice. He knows he's called to step into that. Uh, but instead of trusting God at this point, he's just trying to play God. And here's what happens when we try to play God. When we try to enter into injustice without the power and the presence of God, right? Without the glory of God. That's just another way of saying the glory of God or the power and presence of God. God playing always multiplies injustice instead of healing it. The very people who try to step in and bring healing actually end up becoming agents of injustice. We actually bring more injustice in our attempts to play God than by simply trusting God and his timing, right? Albert Camus, the great philosopher, uh, again, not a, not a follower of Jesus, uh, kind of observed the same thing in, in uh, his native homeland of Algeria and then reflecting on uh, Russia. He has a great uh, series of essays that he wrote around World War time uh, called Neither Victims Nor Executioners. And in this work, he talks about the tendency when victims rise up and they finally begin to throw off their oppressors, what is the next step? The victims become the oppressors. And matter of fact, oftentimes they exact uh, more injustice on their oppressors, if you look at the history of the world, than their oppressors exacted on them in the first place. And so this cycle has a tendency to kind of continue to just reproduce itself and get worse and worse and worse. And and so, God is bringing that awareness to Moses and saying, Moses, this isn't the way that I'm going to deliver my people. What has got you here is not what's going to get you to the promised land. And so, it's time to pause. And God uses this failure in his life to open up his eyes to the ways in which his patterns are not leading to life, but rather are multiplying death. Like, Imagine Moses going into the desert with hundreds of thousands of complaining church folk, right? And being violent, right? I mean, that's just... Let's be honest, right? If you've ever like, been in leadership in a church, you've been in leadership in any kind of organization, you know like you've got to have so much patience, right? God is saying, if you continue to operate and extend this privilege and pain in ways that you're not aware of how your anger is going to get you in trouble, it's going to go badly. I mean, it went badly in the desert, but it would have went, mu- I mean, like everybody would have been dead. Like Moses comes up the mountain, slams the tablets, gets out his ooze and just lays everybody low, right? Like that's, that's what God's inviting him to see. When privilege and pain, and and in ways, many of us are kind of a mixture of both. Some of us have experienced a lot of pain and maybe not much privilege. Some of us a lot of privilege and maybe not a lot of pain. But I guess most of us in this room have our fair share of both. When privilege and pain are not surrendered to God, they ultimately lead us to failure. When privilege and pain are not seen in the larger story of God, They lead us to failure and exploitation and oppression and injustice, even as we're trying to do good things in God's name. I mean, right? Like some of the greatest perpetuators of injustice in the world are religious folk. How is that possible? Because we don't pay attention to this principle. And so the crucible of leadership here, right? The crucible of leadership is going to expose these unhealthy and unredeemed parts of Moses and invite him into a new season of growth, right? Just like it does with all of us. I mean, like you've been promoted to manager and you're excited about the pay raise. Guess what? You're gonna be in the crucible of leadership and it's gonna expose all of your insufficiency, all of your inadequacies, all the things you thought you knew about yourself that you're this loving, benevolent, you know, if i was in charge, if i was running the company, things would be different. You know, like you have kids and you're like i'm not going to do it the way my parents did it. You know, you get out into the community and you're going to be you start a nonprofit and i'm all for starting nonprofits but like we're going to be the ones who figure it out. We start a church, we're going to be the ones that do it the right way. And what do you find out? Oh, i'm not as awesome as i thought i was. Actually, matter of fact, the older I get, the more I tend to reproduce the patterns that were handed down to me instead of disrupting those patterns. It's crazy. You seen that commercial, right, where like the guy gets older and he starts wearing like his mom clothes and talking like his mom? That's what happens in leadership oftentimes. We don't disrupt. We end up repeating those patterns, passing them down to the next generation. So God is inviting Moses to see his control issues. He's inviting him to see... His unhealthy anger, right? Anger's not bad. Anger is, can be righteous, but in Moses' case, it's toxic. It's wrath. It's not been harnessed. It's not been redeemed yet. Um, he, he's inviting him to see how he's trying to play God instead of trusting God. Now, psychologists tell us, like, this is common for kids who grow up in trauma, for kids who grow up in pain when the world seems uncertain and all you can expect in any given day is pain and maybe a beating, what we tend to gravitate towards, and I, and I suspect many of us in this room struggle with this, is control. If I can't control what's going on out there, I'll control what's going on in here. And what happens when we feel out of control, if you're a person that glories in controlling your world and making it really small and tight and putting it in a box, does that sound familiar to anybody? Right? Go ahead and bump your spouse if it's them, right? Like, just think about that, though. When your world gets out of control, what do you do? It's okay. It's no big deal. <laughs> no, man, you freak out. You get angry. Like, that's where you begin to see those patterns in your own life. Look for your anger, look for your anxiety. It is a trailhead into the deeper work that God wants to do in your soul. So, God uses this failure to open up his eyes to his blindness, to bring him to the end of his own strength. And to reveal his need for comprehensive transformation. I mean, it's crazy. By the end of this journey, Moses in Numbers 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, will be called the meekest man on the face of the earth, the most humble man on the face of the earth. How in the world does Moses get from angry murderer to most humble man on the face of the earth? It begins with oftentimes failure, right? Where we begin to see ourselves as we really are. I've told you guys this before, we don't do a good job of seeing ourselves as we are, right? There was a recent business book put out, Insight, about self-awareness. Um, uh, Tasha Ulick is an organizational, organizational psychologist, and she works with a lot of executives and, and big leadership teams. She says 85% of business folks think they're self-aware. According to her estimates and her research, only 15% of people actually are. There's a big gap in awareness and how we see ourselves and how we see and understand how others experience us. So God is bringing him into deeper levels of awareness so that he can transform him. And so the last chapter we see here, and we'll begin to close, is is the wilderness. Very similar to what we saw a few weeks ago with the story of Elijah. Moses flees to the wilderness, but we see an encounter grace in the wilderness. So if you're here and you're feeling like this is a desert season in your life, you're feeling like, Gosh, what is going on? Like, I can't understand. My life is not turning out the way that I thought it would. I'm I'm in the wilderness, and it doesn't seem like God's anywhere to be found. I mean, the most spectacular thing to me about the first first two chapters of Exodus is not what God says, but what God doesn't say. He seems absent. He seems silent. He is. But again, he's inviting Moses out into the wilderness into exile into midian right so moses flees to midian and we see again his courage right he goes to the well and and these wells in the torah are basically it's kind of like a bar almost it's like where all the patriarchs meet their women right like there's something about i don't know it's like the tom cruise scene uh you know in, in top gun it's like the the jukebox is playing and there's something magical about the water in the well and this is where he meets, uh, this is where Jacob meets uh, Rachel and her family, and this is, you know, you can go on and on, Abraham and Wells, and, and there's lots of, Joseph and Wells, um, and so he comes to this well, to this place of divine providence, and he defends uh, these women, these seven sisters, um, he stands up against shepherds. Now, some of you are thinking, not a big deal, shepherds are wimps. Okay, no, shepherds kill bears with their bare hands in the Old Testament, right? These are rough, like working class guys. So Moses beats them down, and then I love like the seven sisters' father, Reol or Jethro, um, he's like, why are you guys home early? And and they're like, well, this Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and he drew water for us and our flocks, which was women's work in those days. So Moses, uh, again, breaking cultural faux pas, uh, waters the flock. And then he, then he says this, where is he? Why have you left the man alone? He knows how dangerous men can be alone. Call him that he might eat some bread, right? Like men like food, just call him on in and let's have a conversation. And Moses ends up marrying one of the daughters. Zipporah gives birth to a son and calls his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. See the desert and the wilderness again is a place of solitude. See that again. It's a place of obscurity, right? We need as leaders oftentimes to be pulled out of kind of the frenetic activity of our lives and to be drawn into the wilderness, into exile, so that we can be humbled and we can learn and we can grow. That's the way that God often operates in the Bible. It's a pattern you see over and over and over again. The obscurity allows us to see ourselves as we really are and to experience God's transformation. That's what we're going to see in chapter 3 next week with Moses. Ruth Haley Barton in her great book, Strengthening the Soul of Leadership, on this passage says, The first leg of Moses' journey as a leader then was not to lead anyone else anywhere. It was to allow himself to be led into freedom from his own bondage. Before he could lead others into freedom, he needed to experience freedom himself. In solitude, he was able to let go of the coping mechanisms that had served him well in the past but were completely inappropriate for the leader he was becoming. And notice all the hidden providences of God here, right? He he takes care of him in the wilderness just the right well at just the right time with just the right family. Moses, who had messed the whole thing up, screwed up the plan of God from a human standpoint, found safety. He found a home. He found a family. And for 40 years, he lives in utter obscurity as God begins to deal with his heart. And one of the ways we know that Moses is experiencing transformation, where he's experiencing a deep change, is the way that he names his child. Naming in the Bible is super important. It often expressed the emotional status of the person who was doing the naming. And notice what he names this child. When he finally comes home, when he finally settles in, into the wilderness, into the solitude, I have been an alien in a foreign land. I mean, this is a lament this is deep pain. Look at all these patterns in my life of anger and murder and the things that have happened because of this confusion that I've had. This wilderness is a place where God is going to reveal himself to Moses. He's going to begin to show him his grace. And again, look at all the parallels here with Abraham, with Jacob, with Joseph. God is beginning to weave uh, weave Moses into his covenant promises, into his redemptive story, and he's personally caring for him. He's going to give him a new identity. But the wilderness is a place of discovery for Moses. It's a place of change as he confronts himself for who he really is. And then he's going to find grace even in the midst of the wilderness. This is not the end of Moses' life. The wilderness feels like death. It's not the end of his life. It is a new beginning. This is the last time we'll ever hear Moses called an Egyptian in the scriptures. Now he's going to emerge from this solitude 40 years later as a champion for the Hebrews, as a deliverer, as a rescuer who now has the kind of discipline, fortitude, and courage, and wisdom tempering that anger and using that heart for injust, against injustice to lead God's people out of slavery and into the promised land. So what, just as we close here and go to communion, I want us to see the bigger, <coughs> the bigger picture. And we'll come back to this <coughs> in a few weeks and next week. But I want us to see the bigger picture of what God's doing. Because at the end of chapter 2, God finally speaks. God finally acts. And so we end with Moses in the wilderness and kind of dark for the people of God. I mean, think about it. Moses leaves and it's 40 years, an entire generation. All the babies are now in midlife by the time God speaks up. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. You see, the true liberator of Israel is not Moses, it's God. That's why the parallels, again, we see Moses saw, but God sees. Moses intervened and failed, God intervenes and succeeds on behalf of his people. God is the champion. God is the one who rescues his people. God sees, it's that same word, he sees with emotion as people are crying out, he hears the cries of the oppressed. God hears cries of injustice. God hears the cries of the impoverished. God hears the prayers of injustice literally coming up before him. It's a prayer, right? They're crying out and praying to God, and God hears he sees, he acts, right? He remembers his promises. He never, God never gets distracted from his purposes. He is always on point, he is always on message, and he is always on time, right? And he shows up at just the right time. God never goes away, like God's not on his phone like parents sometimes, like mom, 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 dad, dad, dad. no, God is always tuned in. The idea of remembering actually here is not like God forgot, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh yeah, these people over here. The idea of remembrance is God is now choosing to fulfill and apply the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I'm going to bless this people. I'm going to deliver them and I'm going to bring them into the land in which I've promised to bring. I'm going to give them my presence, and my power, my provision, my protection. God knew. God sees, God acts, God knows. The idea of knowledge is a deep interpersonal relationship. God is going to come down and he's going to visit his people. He's going to transform Moses and then through him transform the entire community, bringing healing and deliverance and freedom from sin and suffering. Now, he does it in Exodus one time, but we also see another parallel in the new testament another moses who comes and who brings ultimate deliverance once and for all right and you see all the parallels between the life of jesus because moses is foreshadowing he is a signpost pointing to jesus right pointing to our ultimate liberator right he is a signpost to our liberator to jesus right jesus who comes under the edict of death right all the firstborn males were supposed to be killed jesus the family flees to Egypt. He's out in the wilderness 40 days and 40, night, 40 nights, right, in the power of the Spirit, defeating Satan, sin, death, and hell. He reemerges onto the scene as a prophet, judges and delivers his people, not, um, not by just simply uh, li- leading them out, by giving his life at the cost of his own life. He lays his life down and interjects himself to be the sacrificial offering and leads his people into Liberation. And he stands on the mountain, if you remember, in Luke chapter 9, with Moses and Elijah, talking about, the word there literally is talking about his exodus. Luke chapter 9, verse 31. Jesus comes to be our exodus, our deliverer, our liberator, spiritually, physically, emotionally. In every way, God comes, Jesus comes to be our rescuer our deliverer. And so I want to encourage you to come. that's what communion is all about, right? That's what we celebrate every week. We come to the table and we say, God, help. God, I am in pain. God, I am wounded. God, I am in need, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, it is to be one who cries out. The, the language there is one who is deeply shrieking or groaning because I am in pain. I am am in pain because of the circumstances of my life, but I am also in pain because the inside of me is jacked up, right? Because I have made choices, both I, I am a sinner and a sufferer. I have chosen to give myself to other pharaohs, other gods who are not truly God. And so it is a cry for help to say, God, I have both experienced the pain that others have inflicted on me and I am experiencing the consequences of my own stupid decisions to entrust myself to people and to systems that are not you. And so, God, would you deliver me? Would you rescue me? God, I'm crying out to you. God, help. And the good news of the gospel is because of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, God hears. Like right now, you cry out. He hears. He wants to deliver. He wants to save you. He is waiting. You are not too messed up to be saved you are not too far gone. I guarantee you, you haven't done what Moses did, right? And God continues to pursue him, and we'll see in chapter three, he meets him in a burning bush, and he commissions him as the new leader of his new society. How's that for grace? That is amazing grace that none of us deserve. And so the cry for us today as we come to communion is, God, I need you. God, I'm depending on you. God, I'm surrendering to you. Would you take control of my life Help me to stop trying to play God in my life and help me to start trusting you as the only one who can deliver and rescue me from my sin and my suffering. So that's the invitation for you today. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, let's cry out again, right? Because it's not like we don't have pain in our own lives just because we're Christians. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is an opportunity for you to cry out with those simple words, God help God, I need you. I'm at the end of myself like Moses. I am in the wilderness. I am in the desert. My back is against the wall. I have no other options. You're like Peter with Jesus in John chapter eight. Where else can I go? Not a bad place to start. Not a great confession of faith, but I argue a great place to start. I've run out of resources. God, I'm trusting you. And so we'd invite you to come if that's you and receive communion today. Take a piece of the bread, uh, tear it off, dip it into the cup, is a reminder that Jesus' body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you so that you could be rescued, so that you could be delivered. And the first step is just acknowledging that you need to be rescued. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and that's not your story, that's not where you're at, we want to respect you on your journey. and We realize that everybody's in a different place and that might not be where you're at today. But we just invite you to stay in your seat as others come and others make that their own story. We'll respect you as you respect us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll come and we'll take communion. We have stations in the front, stations in the back, and then we'll sing a few songs and send you back out. Father, we thank you for this picture of Moses, this young, anxious leader, God, who you are beginning to, in this story, raise up to be the champion and the liberator and the deliverer and the bringer of justice to your people. God, help us to see ourselves in this story on this journey as people who are in this room a mixture of all kinds of pain and all kinds of privilege, and, and God, who are in different ways experiencing failure, right? As we get older, we recognize we don't have what it takes to rescue and save and deliver ourselves. So God, we find ourselves in a place of need. We find ourselves in a place of desperation, and God, we just want to cry out to you. God, help us. God, save us again. God, liberate us. God, do in us before you do through us. Because if we do it without you, God, it will fail. And so, God, we're asking for your help. We're asking for your mercy and for your grace. God, I pray for us as a people that we would come to you humbly, desperately, and with just a childlike trust, God, that you can do what you said you can do, that you will fulfill your promises towards us to bless us and to call us your children. God, I pray these blessings over this group in Jesus' name.